Welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad that you're tuning in today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Christy Chiesa, and we're going to be discussing all things relating to concussion, from just defining in general what a concussion is, to if you can see a concussion on a CT scan or an MRI, all the way up to classifications and types of concussions, management of them from a physical therapy standpoint, and so much more. This is a episode full of details and insight. You enjoy this episode. Christy, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. For people who aren't familiar with you and the residency work that you've done and everything that you're doing over there in Columbia, Maryland, would you mind kind of filling them in a little bit about who you are and all the awesome stuff that you do? So I'm Christy Chiesa. I went to undergrad and played soccer at Central Michigan, um, went to Pitt for grad school and then completed a sports residency afterwards with Northeastern University and MGH in Boston. Uh, From there, um, I wasn't sure where I was going to go. I thought I was going to end up in Pittsburgh, but I heard last minute from a mentor about a really cool private practice, opening up a bunch of clinics near Baltimore, where I never thought I would be as a Steelers fan. (laughs) And uh, came here really excited to, again, concussions is a important part, important thing to me. So I, I saw that it wasn't treated as well in this area or a lot of areas for that matter. Um, so I really wanted to bring that to this sports environment since there's some awesome schools and athletes around here. So came from a bunch of different cities, but in the end came here and excited to start with some concussion treatment. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I'm so glad that you pronounced your last name because I have been saying that wrong for months now. Um, My apologies. Um, But you're absolutely right on um, the concussion piece. And that's something that's actually how we got connected in the first place was, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there um, in the world of concussion management, concussion treatment. And really, it's an ever evolving field. The way we treat concussions now is not the way we treated concussions, say, 20 to 30 years ago. Uh, But before we get into all the details and nitty gritty about that stuff, what is a concussion? Because I feel like a lot of people, they struggle to define what the heck it even is. Yeah. So a concussion, I mean, there's different definitions of it, but basically, you know, something induced by trauma alters the mental status, may or may not have a loss of consciousness. Um, A lot of people refer to it as a metabolic crisis, just because it's nothing seen on an MRI, a regular MRI or imaging or CAT scan. Um, I think it's important to define trauma. A lot of people think of trauma being direct blows, but really it's as much indirect trauma. So it can be due to forces of acceleration, deceleration, rotational forces, and, you know, as I said, it may or may not involve loss of consciousness. So a lot of people, they come in and they're like, well, I didn't totally black out. So I didn't think that I had one, but really loss of consciousness only occurs in like less than 10% of cases. So I think that's the, the big thing that some people surprisingly don't understand about concussion is that in your standard MRI, CAT scan, x-ray, really those are such the CT scan used to rule out more, you know, brain bleeds, but they're not going to show a concussion when it comes to standard imaging. 
Really? That's interesting because um, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of having a concussion, but at least for me, every time I've gone to the ER, it's like, okay, we're going to do, you know, this imaging thing to rule it out. Um, It's interesting how that isn't actually showing you anything. Um, So how would you diagnose a concussion then? Is it more based on like subjectively how someone presents or is it more based on the nature of the injury or what are you looking at? Yeah, it's definitely more of a clinical diagnosis. I know that a lot of further research is coming out recently about things like an fMRI, blood biomarkers, and and different things like that. But really, especially in our case, and, and I feel like it's enough to be a clinical diagnosis, um, you're looking at things like cervical spine, ocular pieces, vestibular pieces, bombs assessments, balance, all of these things. In addition to intangibles like anxiety, depression, there's all these little subgroups and cohorts of concussion that people can fall into. So really concussion in the beginning, it's almost like you're ruling out the structural issues, which if people go to the ER and they're getting the CT scan, that's ruling out things like skull fractures and hematomas or hemorrhaging. But after that, it's really the clinical exam and just a lot of subjective and getting past medical history. That's super important as much as the actual eval itself. Right, right. I like how you mentioned a few different things there. One, the categories, because not every concussion is going to present identically. And if I remember correctly, you kind of broke them up into vestibular, ocular, cognitive, um, a cervical, uh, there was one that was like a anxiety or mood altering one. And then like a headache migraine type one. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And then recently, again, that subgrouping came from, you know, my first experience treating concussions with, with the UPMC concussion clinic. So that's some of their literature out, which very much corresponds and overlaps with some other literature of people with subgroupings. The one area that I don't think that covers as clearly is the autonomic dysfunction, more of the exertion intolerance area. And especially when you talk about treating athletes, that's something that I think needs to be more clearly delineated for people to fall into just like they would fall into multiple categories of the other subgroups. Right, right. And it's, it's becoming very clear to the listener here that, um, you know, concussions can have such a profound impact on the body. It's not just a brain thing. It can impact so many different subsystems from, as you mentioned, autonomic. So basic, just vagal nerve function, uh, heart rate variability, I would believe would come into question as well, um, all the way up to your balance, your vision, all these different things. And that, that creates a lot for you to try and assess and look at. So how do you try to get a handle on all these different things in say 30 to 45 minutes. Having a good idea and good structure um, in my eval is very helpful, but a lot of times my first eval could simply talk about past medical history and describing that person's symptoms and the mechanism of injury and issues with different tasks. And honestly, that could be enough for me to give them the first part of their home exercise program. A lot of times that ends up being behavioral. So sometimes before anything else, get a thorough history and then recognize what their current behaviors are, what they're avoiding, maybe doing too much of, 
things that they're things like avoiding busy areas, turning down lights on their phone, turning down noise in their headphones, uh, not driving, things that that make sense to a point when it comes to them wanting to be safe. Things like driving, you don't want to throw that, throw them into a car if they're not ready. But all of those things you can work on either through virtual reality, them being a passenger, bringing some, someone with them, and similar to slowly increasing the light. So some of it in the beginning, the behavioral tasks are the biggest thing because not only does that incorporate them into their daily lives and get them back to that baseline, but it makes them happier. Like people want to go and be out with friends. They want to be with family. They want to do things that they did at baseline, no matter how minuscule they may be. So a lot of times that helps with buy-in day one with them to have them understand education and then behavioral modification. And they come in just ready to listen to whatever more exercises you want to give them because it has such a profound effect on them. Almost everyone has some kind of anxiety, depression, mood components, understandably, because a concussion kind of flips their world upside down. So first and foremost, the education piece, the behavioral management, just based on what they can tell me in the intake of an eval. And then normally I go through a little list, such as in a seated position, looking at the cervical spine. If you want to clear any red flags, especially like the sharp purser, transverse ligament integrity, things like overpressure um, on the cervical spine, looking at the ocular system, the vestibular system, doing the VOMS, which is the vestibular oculomotor screening for concussion. You're looking at their eyes tracking, quick eye movements back and forth and up and down. You're looking at them focusing in on one object, doing quick head movements, full body movements. And then normally I get them to more of a standing position, having them do balance, which could be single leg balance, just like the modified sit-sib. It could be the FGA, the DGI. There's a million acronyms of things you could do. Um, and then also considering things in supine, having them look at uh, neck, deep neck flexor, uh, muscle endurance, looking at things like DVAs or anything that you need to check for other vestibulo hypofunction. And same thing if you think that they have a BPPV component. Um, there are a lot of different things you can look at, but again, the subjective and the intake could tell me enough about a treatment session. Otherwise, I normally go in the cervical ocular vestibular balance order especially depending on having a dependent on the position that they're in, not trying to have them go up, down, up, down, just like you should do with an ortho eval. So it helps to have that predetermined order in my brain. But again, there have been times I haven't even laid hands on that person. All I've done is talk to them and they come back the second visit, totally different than the first, normally in a good way. So that's, that's normally what I've found to be helpful, just like any other ortho eval, getting in a flow of things. And I think that takes time because it's easy to get very overwhelmed by a lot of the different components of concussion. And uh, it, yeah, it just takes practice. Yeah, I love that approach. And in reality, you have a system that you've developed. And now you can just repeat that over and over and over again. And you're kind of covering all the different categories that we talked about earlier, you're checking all the boxes you need to check. 
And I think that's essential because no two concussions are going to present identical. So while we talked about those categories, I'm guessing there's a little bit of overlap sometimes where someone might have signs from multiple categories, or maybe they uh, start in one and they end in another. Um, I also really like how you touched on the importance of the activity and behavioral component, because that's something that I believe was originally just kind of avoided altogether, right? I think it was dark room, avoid light, avoid activity, just avoid, avoid, avoid. And then after, you know, so many weeks or however, they were just kind of cleared to go back and do everything. There was no progression. There was no stepwise approach to things. Um, and while that progression is probably going to vary a lot patient to patient, I like that there's intention to expose them to something before we just say, okay, you're done being in a dark room for two weeks. Now you can go drive and do everything you used to do again. Yeah. And unfortunately, <clears throat> a lot of, there's a lot of new research coming out and I think people are getting a better handle on appropriate <clears throat> concussion treatment. But unfortunately, I still see a lot of people who come in after having even years of issues and they were told some of that, those same things to avoid things and symptoms are always bad and you don't want to feel any symptoms. So like you said, black the room, sleep as long as you want. And, you know, they, they say this as if this will magically get that person back to their baseline when really the only way to get back to what you want to do it's to slowly reincorporate yourself to do what you want to do. You have to actually do those actions, go, go to those places, go to those events. And um, that's, that's a hard thing to tell someone who has been told the exact opposite coming in. So especially, again, you have to make sure you're educating that, that person and not just telling them things, giving them the research and the rationale, because that's definitely something that's is constantly happening with new literature coming out. I, I compare it almost to the ACL. Sometimes there's all this literature coming out and it's impossible to know everything, but there's so much out there that you can utilize and summarize to help with education. And it's, it's not an excuse. There's no excuse at all to not have that at least up-to-date methodology that people need to be using with concussion patients, because otherwise you're missing it totally if you're telling that person to totally avoid things and you're wasting you're wasting their time and they're just going to end up seeing someone else like me who's going to tell them things that are shocking them but that should be common knowledge you, you brought up an interesting point in there you started to mention about kind of like a recurrent concussion theme or someone who's had multiple concussions in the past when you're doing that subjective exam piece that you talked about earlier what goes through your head when someone's like, oh, yeah, this is my fourth concussion or my fifth concussion? Because I think we're seeing a lot more in the news lately anyways about mm -hmm. recurrent head injuries or recurrent uh, TBI type events in sport. Um, so what goes through your head as a provider when you start to see that kind of stuff? One of my first <clears throat> immediate questions is, did you recover from them? Uh, you know, I had a jujitsu. She was a jujitsu world champion at one point. And I don't even think she realized that she had multiple concussions and was off even before she saw me. But sometimes people, whether they know they have concussions or whether they don't, they, they'll just accept that they have these lingering issues or they might not even realize because it becomes 
a part of their normal, that's where people really get into trouble, where they start to get multiple concussions. And a lot of times it's not helped by the fact or in part it contributes to the fact that they were never fully recovered in the first place. And that's in the end, my goal when I rehab someone is to basically say, I think that you're safe to get hit in the head again. Not that you want them to, but that's how it should be whenever you're rehabbing someone similar again with an ortho injury, you're thinking that they're safe to go out, go into a tackle and not re-tear their ACL. It's similar with the concussion. So it is very challenging when people come in and talk about how it's a handful of concussions that they've had. I certainly ask them about the details of them. I ask them about any lingering symptoms and they almost always have some lingering things that weren't addressed fully. And then normally that would be an immediate referral, having them get in contact normally with a neuropsychologist. I have different um, references that I use in referral sources, but certainly when someone has that you know, that number of concussions and the more risk factors that they have, that's when I start to get other medical professionals involved because their, their lane is totally different from mine. And I know when to stay in my lane and when there's something that other people should be taking care of. So it's, it helps to have that collaboration. It makes my life much easier for what otherwise would be a very complex case if someone has multiple there's that cheesy like fourth grade saying that teamwork makes the dream work or something stupid like that and you know while it sounds cliche it can really hold true when it comes to patient care for complex cases especially like the recurrent concussion because there are so many pieces and so many factors to look at as you mentioned you know did they recover in the first place but also what other long-term effects could have happened because of that and while you might not be able to capture all of that in a 45 minute or even hour-long eval, you can probably piece a lot of it together based on past medical records and past medical history that you can kind of accumulate by collaborating with their other providers. So I I highly encourage and echo your point to collaborate as much as possible. Now, we've been talking about concussions. We've talked about some post-concussive type things in the sense of what could happen if they repeat or reoccur. What exactly are you doing with concussions in your clinic outside of, you know, your initial eval and encouraging them to, you know, get back to where they were before progressively. I mean, when people think concussion treatment, I don't think a lot of them think physical therapy first anyways. Yeah, I agree. So going back to after the initial eval, you have to stratify those people in their given subgroup. And then there's a list of exercises and processes that you can go through to address them in each subgroup. So vestibular subgroup, that's where you're talking about the vestibulo-ocular reflex. You're talking about things like visual motion sensitivity, the vestibulo-ocular reflex cancellation system. You're talking about a lot of quick head movements, full body rotations. Those are things, I mean, literally it's like arts and crafts. I just go to Michael's (laughs) And I get, everyone's judging me as I'm doing it. I just get all these popsicle sticks and beads and yarn. And I can just make Brock strings and I can do, put out like 14 point font and attach it to a popsicle stick. 
and have them go back and forth as they look at that, like that letter. So some of the things that I do in the assessment, I can end up doing in their treatment because again, I'm testing the reflexes by having them do something like stare at a letter and do quick head movements. If they have symptoms with that and they fall in that category, that's one of the first things that I'm giving to them. Now that's a very low level thing, just having them do that in standing, same with the full body rotations, focusing on that object. But then as you are progressing that person, you can start to do walking with it. You can start doing things like, you know, single leg RDLs where they're staring at a spot. If you're having them look at a soccer ball, you can have them do things like 180 degree jump turns and adding whatever kind of sports specific movement that they have. So that's definitely a vestibular system is commonly affected when it comes to the ocular system. Um, A lot of times, again, checking convergence, you're just having them bring that popsicle stick in, letting them know when it doubles. If they are greater than five centimeters, which is less than five centimeters is considered within normal limits with convergence, then I would just have them do that as an exercise. From there, I can make those Brock strings that I talked about with the beads and having them focus in and converge on each bead. And from there, you just start to do things. I can add visual tracking to VOR. I can have them do things like word searches on the wall. I'll I'll just put letters on post-it notes, put out words, and they have to find each individual one as they're standing or doing some kind of movement. And again, sports-specific movements, some of it, you talk about returning a professional baseball player. If someone's a, regardless of what position, but you talk about a catcher, talk about someone who really has to have that quick convergence. You need to make sure that you're replicating all of that in the clinic as much as possible. So a lot of it, I'll try to set up those sports specific scenarios where they need to have that quick convergence or that quick eye tracking, and then go from there. The cervical part, Immediately, mine goes to chin tucks and different, different, yeah, right. Very basic, but chin tucks, different isometrics when their head is stable, then having them move into more rotation. Also, as they get better with the vestibular stuff, if they have that components, but you always have the, again, the periscapular strength, shoulder strength, always low hanging fruit. Same with posture adjustments. I also have a you have to buy it online, but it's like a vestibular maze and it looks really goofy, but like a headlamp with a laser on it. And I have them do tasks that look at their cervical proprioception where they're trying to go through that maze, having to be very focused and not too fast, but not too slow going through the vestibular maze, having them do targets with their eyes open and their eyes closed. And again, you have to bring that into sports specific scenarios whole body movements to make sure that they're also maintaining that good neck strength and stability. Um, The anxiety mood parts or the cognitive part, emotion part, some of it is big behavioral modifications or sometimes referring them to a psychologist or a neuropsychologist to help further with that because maybe that person needs medication eventually. If I'm curious about that, I'll refer them out. But a lot of times breathing techniques, mindfulness, having them see if there's something they can do that challenges their symptoms still, that's almost an exercise, but that makes them happy. So if it's a teacher and they can't go back to teach right now, see if they can go and volunteer somewhere where there's also kids around trying to do things that 
makes people happy, makes them want to get back to their normal daily routine. But again, helps with the anxiety mood component. The post-traumatic migraine one is tricky. Sometimes those people end up benefiting most from medication, but they also benefit from the same vestibular exercises. You just need to keep in mind that collaboration will definitely be needed if that person needs some kind of prescription. And going to cognitive stuff, similar with the anxiety and motion, but there's different apps you can use and a, a wider array of, of things. And the exertion piece, there's a bunch of different tests you can run through. I use the exit testing, which consists of an aerobic component, normally intervals or running on a treadmill. From there, you do some rotational things, some line drills. So all that really highlights as you're looking at that person's blood pressure, heart rate, rate of perceived exertion. From there, you can form a program that maybe it just starts with walking and monitoring their heart rate there. Maybe then it goes to biking and the elliptical, or you're incorporating more dynamic movements during their other exercises for vestibular or ocular. And from there, again, really getting into the sports specific movements, but you may also be very mindful of their either blood pressure, heart rate, especially if they have a fitness watch, or I have a heart rate monitor that I'll put on people that connects to my phone or rate of perceived exertion. So there's, as I just listed off, you know, completely breathless now, there's, uh, so many things that, that you can do, but a lot of it is all starting with baseline in place, simple static positions, and then gradually progressing into those sports specific movements as much as possible. Because I think that that's seriously missed by a lot of concussion doctors and PTs, because on paper, that person could come in and say, I'm feeling great. They could look great on the bombs assessment and by all accounts could be considered appropriate for discharge. But if it's a, again, major league baseball player, who's a catcher, that person has to be of much higher level of performance in their daily tasks. And it may be those, that last high level 100 mile an hour pitch that they have to catch safely that causes symptoms still. And you can't miss that or else that person is going to continue to have lingering issues. You have to make sure that you're doing as sport specific of a movement as possible during your treatment towards the end or else that person isn't going to be fully back to normal. And again, a lot of people that I see don't even realize it at the time because they can adopt different compensatory actions or behaviors, but that can make a huge difference. Yeah. I love the way that you broke that down, Christy, going through almost all the categories that we talked about earlier. And I can't echo your point enough about just being sport specific and sport minded if you're treating an athlete for a concussion. Um, and I think that we could take that a step further and say, regardless of who you're treating, whether they're an athlete or not, maybe it's just someone who, you know, in their free time, they like to go horseback riding, fell off a horse, they want to get back to it. Well, then you need to find a way to work that into your treatment session and individualize it to them. Um, and I also like your point about how 
you know, at the end of the day, we can't just go off of their score on one test or their score on two tests. Even we have to kind of look at things a little bit more subjectively and say, Hey, you know, does this person look like the other people that do what they're doing? Do they, you know, does this athlete match the um, other athletes in this facility right now that do the same sport, the same position? Are they at the same level? Because if they're not, we have to figure out why that is. If we don't do that, that's a huge disservice to the patient. And that's basically just an open invitation to see him again in the clinic for four to six weeks. And while we love our patients, uh, we don't like seeing them all over again for the same thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I love that you bring that up. You mentioned about the aerobic component to it, which I think is very interesting and also overlooked. I think a lot of physical therapists especially kind of forget about the aerobic adaptations to training. How does the aerobic adaptation overlap with some of the sports-specific stuff that you were talking about earlier? Because naturally, if you do enough of something like a 180-degree box jump, there's going to be a conditioning component to it. While that's not necessarily the intent of that exercise, the more you get up and moving in that full body fashion, the more stress and strain it'll put on your vascular system. So -hmm. how do you kind of go about walking that line between doing enough activity, but not too much due to the aerobic conditioning component? Normally, so during all of these exercises and I establish on the initial eval talking about the importance of expose recover with concussion treatment. So there is nothing wrong with symptoms, especially at that point. I'm like, your, your brain is clear. Nothing bad is happening. Just freaking out a little. It's the metabolic crisis, whatever other ways I can explain to them. But I normally just say your brain's just freaking out a little. It's making a poke, a punch, right? And we need to desensitize it. So I make sure that people understand that I actually want them to get symptoms because that means we're working in the right zone, but there needs to be a threshold or otherwise they're just torturing themselves and they're not doing anything. They're not necessarily doing anything worse, but they're certainly not doing anything better. Normally I give that about a six out of 10, 10 being maximum symptoms and maybe adjusted if someone has greater or you know, less intensity symptoms, depending on the personality. Some people are more likely to push or less affected by their symptoms. Maybe I make their threshold a little lower, but similar to any of the ocular vestibular exercises, I want them getting symptoms, but I need to have that threshold established so that if they get symptoms up to a seven out of 10, They need to step away, let symptoms settle. And if they do go right back into it, it's the exact same with any type of exertion component or exertion deficiency, all depending on, and it also helps me looking, asking about, I normally do rate of perceived exertion and I just give them a zero to 10 scale, 10 being they're working as hard as they possibly can. I'm monitoring their RPE, and then also asking about symptoms because it's the same thing. If they're on the bike, someone starts to get a headache at seven out of 10, I tell them to ease off in intensity or maybe just take a break totally for a little bit. But if it goes back down, going right back into it. So it's a combination of making sure that you're monitoring the actual symptoms, but then also monitoring other things like their RPE. If they have a fitness watch again, That's very useful because you have the idea of 
estimated heart rate max, 220 minus their age, thinking about percentages, does that line up with their RPE? Are they at 80% of their heart rate max, but saying that they're at a, at a 10 out of 10 rate of perceived exertion, that matters. Definitely using those parameters a little more than you might otherwise, but still the symptoms end up being the biggest limiting factor if they really have that autonomic dysfunction. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Is And again, to our point from before that each patient is going to present very differently. So while some, you know, you might do an activity and it might only provoke them to a two out of 10, someone else at that same stage might jump right up to that seven or eight out of 10. Um, so definitely speaking again to the individualization of your progression. Now, I'd imagine for you as a clinician, the first time you're working with someone and they jump right up to that eight out of 10, nine out of 10, 10 out of 10 threshold, that's probably a little bit scary for you the first time or two it happens. What goes through your head when that happens? And how do you kind of keep your, I'll say calmness and confidence as a clinician when, you know, that happens for the first time or the first couple times, or, you know, you're working with someone who's trending well, and unexpectedly you have a off day like that. Fortunately, I I've had few cases where someone has come in and right away in every category have beyond that threshold. If they do, sometimes it ends up being a lot of anxiety that is heightening their response. And overall, they're just very fearful. So that magnifies the intensity that they tell you. But similar to if someone comes in on the other side of the coin that you mentioned, and they come in, things are much worse. I just think, how can we modify this? Is it something where X exercise makes them feel better than Y exercise and seeing if we can kind of trick their body into accepting one form of an exercise, even though it doesn't like another form of the exercise that works on the same thing. Or maybe you just adjust the speed, adjust the reps. There's a bunch of similar to lifting there's a volume that you can adjust based on their symptoms. Normally, almost always in my experience, especially, especially since people fall in multiple buckets, you can work more in one subgroup than another. If their dizziness is just not having it that day, I'm not going to have them do quick head movements. I can have them work instead on behavioral exposure, exposure or doing ocular movements or maybe if their primary issue is vestibular, I just ease off on some of the intensity on some of the reps. Normally there's some kind of adjustments that you can make pretty easily that can at least not worsen that person's symptoms. But again, making sure that that patient has that affirmation and that education that nothing is happening. And a lot of times I tell people that they may feel worse before they feel better. And they need to be aware of that. They can't just be aware that, or can't just be thinking that they're going to come in, visit three and everything's gone. They need to understand that progress, they're still going to have their dips. And overall, if, if they do their things correctly, they will get better. But it's, it's hard in the beginning because they're doing things that their body is telling them not to do. So it, there's a learning curve there and a time for desensitization. But as I said, there's almost 
always a way to modify or focus on a different area of impairments, even if they're really hyped up in another one. I love that. Yeah, always a way to progress or regress everything. And really going back to the topic of just having a therapeutic window, right? Everything has a dose response relationship. If you do too much, you start to get diminishing returns. If you don't do enough, you get no effect. So you're always looking for that optimal kind of like Goldilocks zone, I'll call it, for everything that you're doing. And that is definitely essential with the management of concussions. And as you mentioned, too, you can never rule out the mental role because the Mm -hmm. mental side of things, especially you mentioned the anxiety a few times, that can have a ripple effect over onto the autonomic side for sure. I would say a lot of the anxiety, though, it's not just something that someone would initially have. They might even have it, you know, when they're getting close to that return to sport point. They're resuming an activity that they haven't done in weeks or possibly even longer, depending on the nature of their injury. So from your eyes, you know, is it normal for someone to be afraid of returning to their sport or returning to their past activity after a concussion is you know, is that a valid feeling for them to have? And how do you kind of uh, counsel them, I'll say, on, you know, what they're facing mentally at that point? Absolutely. Again, thinking about an ACL returning, they're going to be scared as heck going into that first tackle. If I have a girl who comes in after getting totally clobbered by a goalie going up for a header, she's going to be awful anxious about situations like that. So I actually had a girl that I was treating. She was younger and that exact situation happened. She got clobbered by a goalie going up for a header. And the first thing that I did as we got into that return to sport phase was look to see her form in that movement and how can we best replicate that movement in the clinic, but gradually progress to have more contact against her. In her case, I had to help with form first and foremost because she was younger. She was around 12. I don't know if you've seen 12-year-old soccer players go up to head the ball. It's not always the prettiest, especially now because kids, rightfully so, are told to wait in order, you know, they talk about just younger kids most more likely to get concussions. And I had to focus on her form first and foremost to make that she to make sure that she could protect herself and hit the ball appropriately. Then from there, starting with things like basic headers, nice normal environments, then headers her moving, headers with me pushing her a little bit so that she has to be reactive. And on the other side of things outside of PT, making sure that there's making sure that there's an established relationship between me and her mom, me and the coach, me and the athletic trainer working with her to make sure that she's also practicing those things on her own, but in a controlled environment until we slowly progress back into things. So similar to anything else, just trying to replicate those movements as best as possible because it totally makes sense going up. And again, if I got a concussion from a header, I'm going to be awful anxious going back into it. Just like an ACL going into a tackle for the first time when they could have torn it, like being tackled by another player. It's just making sure that you're really increasing their confidence. And again, almost desensitizing them to those situations through repetition and through gradually having them do it in a less controlled environment. 
I, I like how you keep comparing it to the ACL because I think that's one that most people are familiar with right now uh, by now. And if they're not, they really need to go back and listen to that podcast I did a little bit ago with Dr. Drees and Dr. Stone there because we talked all about it. Um, but it's certainly normal um, to have some of that fear, some of that anxiety when you first get back to things. And, you know, you could even apply it to a variety of other injuries as well. But it's okay to be a little bit timid and a little bit shy your first time back out there you know everyone starts somewhere and I think at the end of the day a lot of athletes can be their own worst enemy because they don't allow themselves to you know quote unquote suck for three minutes you know it's okay to have a off first couple minutes back on the pitch back on the field for you know your first return to sport it's okay in fact in some cases I think we almost expect it um, I think we're kind of surprised when someone goes out there, just guns a blazing like nothing ever happened. Um, it's nice when it happens, but um, it's not often. So uh, I think just overall lesson for athletes is don't beat yourself up too much after the journey that you've been through, because no one else has gone through what you have just experienced. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a good way to put it. Christy, as we start to wrap up here, is there anything that we missed or anything we didn't discuss that you want to dive into more? Not necessarily. There are a couple things that I think it's important for people to realize in terms of risk factors. You need to understand in orthopedic injuries, normally it's better if someone's young, but with concussions, it's the opposite. Being younger actually puts you at greater risk for a prolonged recovery. And also recognizing that just because someone didn't lose consciousness, that doesn't really have an effect on how serious their concussion is. Loss of consciousness is important. Having seizures on the field or something very dramatic like that is certainly important. But one of the greatest predictors for a prolonged recovery from a concussion is actually immediate dizziness on the field. So don't discount something like a headache or dizziness just because it doesn't seem as severe realize that sometimes these symptoms and the severity of the symptoms don't necessarily reflect the severity of the concussion uh, the last thing would probably be to understand that just because someone went to the er doesn't mean that everything is clear when it comes to the neck what we should remember from school, if nothing else about the neck, is that the C12 integrity, that ligament integrity and that stability is only seen on an open mouth x-ray. There was one time, and fortunately, it ended up being okay. There was a woman I had who had a serious car accident, got hit almost head on, all these other orthopedic injuries, and they did a CT, they did an MRI, all of that was okay, thank goodness. But had her in clinic and I started asking her these questions to clear the cervical spine still because you can't everyone does different assessments and a lot of times especially when someone has orthopedic injuries things can get missed so always look at the neck she had midline tenderness she had at one point made a comment when I did a sharp purser that she felt like her head was in the right place after I did it. So there wasn't a clunk, but she said that. And that was kind of like that, okay, we're not going to put you anywhere. And I went like Grand Theft Auto to the closest pharmacy, got a cervical collar, collared her up and sent her to the ER. 
So people need to realize that things like that are not always checked. We, it's not like we can do CTs. It's not like we can do MRIs here, but you need to know the skills that you have to rule out those red flags if they apply and don't overlook them because things can still happen. And although, although that woman was okay, although the likelihood of that happening is less, thank goodness, it can still happen. And you need to identify things like red flags and don't assume that other healthcare providers have looked at them. You know what they say about assuming things after all, Christy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and major props to you for picking up on that when you did for that person, because imagine if you didn't. Yeah. Uh, so exactly. that completely you know, echoes your own point to the importance of checking everything, not assuming anything, and always clear the cervical spine regardless of you know if it's concussion or if you're just general outpatient clinic treating like vertigo or something like check the neck it's not going to hurt it's going to take you two seconds um christy for people who want to find out more about you and keep up to date with all the amazing things that you're doing where can they find you at so if anyone wants to reach me through email, it's Christy, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E at truesportspt.com. Be happy to answer anything over email. I also have an Instagram handle at Chiesa, C-H-I-E-S-A dot D-P-T. So anyone could also reach out through either of those electronic. <laughs> what, what, whatever they are. That's a raven. I don't care. <laughs> whatever works. I like it. I like it. Uh, Christy, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate the knowledge and insight that you bring uh, on the side of concussions. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.